Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Streets Ahead, a podcast dedicated to active travel, livable streets, and people-focused urban design. I'm Adam Tranto. I'm Ned Bolton. And I'm Laura Laker. And welcome to this a special emergency broadcast. Last week I announced an unprecedented £2 billion investment to put walking and cycling right at the heart of our transport policy. The first stage is worth £250 will include a series of swift emergency measures, including pop-up bike lanes, wider pavements and cycling and bus-only corridors. This money should help protect our public transport network in the weeks and months ahead. It's my hope that they will eventually allow us to harness the vast health, social and environmental benefits that active forms of travel can provide. So uh, this has been a busy week for active travel. Uh, Laura, Ned, how have your weeks been? Have you been consumed by uh, by the news we're about to talk about? Um, yes, yes, I have. Um, yeah, I was writing a few comment pieces on the weekend. I went on BBC Radio London to talk to Sunny and Shay about it. They were very nice. Um, and I also ended up uh, sampling the uh, NHS uh, Whips Cross Hospital because I had a piece of grit in my eye for a week and uh, I had to go and get it removed. So that was a bit of excitement. Uh, my my week has been a little bit less. Oh, I hope you're better, by the way, Laura. You, can you see okay? Oops. Yeah, it's fine. It's really weird. It was, <laughs> it was really scratchy at first and then it kind of got less scratchy and I thought, oh, well, it's okay. And I was reading something about eyes and about how people aren't going to hospital with things and then they're getting worse. And I thought, actually, my eye is still hurting. My sister's a nurse and she said, go to A&E. So, um, yeah, they kind of turned my eyelid inside out and like put some yellow oh. stuff in there. Ooh, I hate stuff like that. Sorry. Yeah. Probably a lot of people listening will be like, oh God, I'm eating <laughs> my breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fine. Actually. Yeah. My week's been a little bit less clearly defined just as we were lining up to record the podcast before you joined in. Adam, Laura was just asking me how my weekend was. 
um, which is a term I, that has no meaning to me. It never really has done actually being a sports reporter. I was explaining that before I got into cycling, I was a, I was a football reporter. So I was probably busier at the weekends than I was during the week. And now in the entire absence of sports, um, it, it's just, uh, it's just slipped into complete meaninglessness, I have to say. Um, but nonetheless, I've been, I've been kind of very interested in Laura's output in The Guardian and uh, other uh, outlets as well. And Adam, I've been kind of following the stuff that you've been posting on our WhatsApp group and, and other, other different sort of uh, platforms. And um, it does feel like you talk about this being a new podcast. I don't know how many weeks it is since we recorded our pilot, because as I say, time has lost any sense of um, proportion. But it does feel like a, in, a, in a very small amount of time, really quite a lot, if not, no, I think quite a lot actually has changed. And certainly there's a potential for a lot more to change. In fact, the story seems to have evolved incredibly quickly, because as far as I remember in our pilot, we were tentatively kind of. Um, exploring the notion that this crisis might have some unintended positive consequences. And now we seem to be right in the thick of that story. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I think things have developed really quickly and it's worth, worth having a look at that kind of timeline. I think we should probably give credit to, to our own Laura Laker, who's, who's writing on this topic, which has been shared by Greta Thunberg has uh, has led elected officials to totally change their position on the matter so let's not let's not underestimate that and all the other uh, good work that's that's gone in um, from from advocates and and campaign groups but I guess effectively um, Chris Heaton Harris was was asked a question by Ruth Cadbury what seems like ages ago but during a transport select committee um, I think in in early April and he wasn't prepared for that and didn't give any form of good answer as to whether the government would back temporary infrastructure despite this happening in places like Bogota, uh, where um, this is already kind of making international news. Um, and we've kind of gone on a journey since then. I've, I was involved with writing a letter through through Brompton and also British Cycling, Sustrans, um, Cycling UK, uh, and, and Bart's NHS Trust as well, who we wrote a letter to Chris Heaton Harris saying, uh, effectively, you need to support this because it's going to keep key workers moving and help mitigate against a second wave of infection. And 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 it's kind of gone on from there, Laura. Yeah, I think to be fair to the Department for Transport, I think a lot of the um, cycling announcements, and this was true for the original uh, two million pound, two billion pounds, which was announced by government back in February. I think that came from the number ten, and so did this, and so probably the DFT wasn't in a position to know anything. But it does seem to be led by Boris Johnson himself, or so I've been hearing, which is fantastic. But like you say, the kind of the voices have become a bit of a clamour, and and it's become it's gotten to the point where it's harder and harder to ignore the potential situation that we'll face if we don't act. And and the story about Milan, I think that's the point at which I realised they were talking about everyone rushing back to their cars and the potential gridlock that that would cause, and obviously the air pollution issues that they've got. And I think you know cities like London would probably have thought about that in their planning for an eventual easing of lockdown, looked at the figures and thought, holy crap, we're going to have to do something about this. And we're going to have to do something quite drastic if we're to keep the streets moving. And, and you know, on a national level, that's obviously going to be replicated of, you know, city upon city around the UK. So yeah, it's become an inescapable uh, need to do something. I think that's that's right, Laura. And uh, I would very much encourage you both to drill down into the detail of what this money should be spent on and what 
what it could be spent on and what it already has been spent on, which boroughs are cooperating and which perhaps less so across the country as well. Let's always try and get out of our London bubble. I know, Adam, you are literally outside of the London bubble, but perhaps Laura and I might be too, too much involved in it. But I thought just to return to London briefly as a kind of um, touchstone, I thought I was very struck by a thread that was posted on Twitter by Heidi Alexander, who used to be an MP just um, up the road from me, actually, in um, Lewisham, and has switched now to a role at the uh, at the London Assembly where she holds a position with TfL, I understand. can't remember exactly which one it is. But she she herself has, is a cycling convert. You know, she lives in Hither Green, which is just a mile from here and commutes into Tower Bridge. And she does it by bike almost all the time. And that was something unimaginable to her before she got involved. So she's an excellent ally. But she made a very striking point, I thought, online in a thread saying, and it was a kind of paradigm shift in my thinking that I that took me somewhat by surprise, but it's bang on the money, where she said, she shifted it up a gear and said, actually, the crisis on public transport overground trains and tubes is so acute in terms of the need to socially distance and the number of seats available that if you can cycle, it's not just so much we encourage you to cycle, it's actually you should probably think about this as being your duty now to cycle or your responsibility, the socially responsible, the responsible thing to do, which is a whole different level of demand, isn't it, of incitement. I, I've been using a stat uh, when I've been talking about this that in, in London, but I, I guess elsewhere, you know, we're going to have 10% of available public transport capacity, which to put it into perspective, even if just secondary school children traveled uh, to school, that would overwhelm the potential bus capacity that we have uh, in, in the city. And I imagine other cities around, uh, around the country. So we really have to look at new ways to, uh, to get ourselves about for short journeys, which is, which is not, New to us, but it's worth uh, it's worth recapping for those of you who have been sat under a rock or driving a car um, to uh, know exactly where we're at now. So, following on from those uh, kind of ministerial comments and and the letters that are being written and the campaigning that's been doing and the articles that have been written by Laura, uh, we got to a position that on Saturday, 9th of April, the Secretary of State for Transport, Grant Shapps. He stood on the podium of the government's daily press conference and announced on the face of it what looked like a game-changing moment for active travel in this country. Um, but as some critics have said, uh, including uh, myself and Laura, uh, this is not new money. Uh, it was first announced in February and in possibly a typical government fashion. It's been repurposed for a new announcement. That said, uh, there are some significant positives to take away from the news. And uh, for me, uh, a level of political will not frequently seen for cycling and walking. So that's why we've uh, convened this excitingly named emergency podcast. We'll just come and put that in the title to make it more clickable, probably. Um, but uh, we should we should really talk about what that uh, what that means and and uh, what effect it have. So, Laura, give us the lowdown on this two billion pounds and the two hundred and fifty million pounds that comes uh, inverted commas instantly for temporary infrastructure. Yeah, so um, also important to note, um, it's over five years. So that takes us to 350 million a year, which is actually flat uh, in terms of funding. And uh, one of the government's targets before all of this happened was to double cycling um, from 2015 levels by 2025. So that's in five years. And at current levels of spending, we're set to meet only 30%, I think, of that target. 30 or 40%. They say they need six billion pounds, right, to to even reach their own target. Yeah, yeah. Six to eight billion 
a, over five years. That's what the um, Active Travel Alliance, the Cycling and Walking Alliance, uh, says that we need. Um, and you know, even even then, it's you know, it will be a challenge for councils to spend that kind of money because historically they don't have the staff in place. I think the ones that are going to do well out of this are the ones that have already got um, what they call local cycling and walking infrastructure plans or LC. It sounds a bit, but actually they're quite good um, because it's basically councils have gone along, looked at their existing network and kind of joined up the gaps on a map and said, well, this is where the demand is kind of thing. This is where we need to join the existing routes to make a network. And so they've got kind of plans in their cupboard that they can just guess out when the money appears. So I think when I spoke to people in the DFT in March, so I think it was early, mid-March, just before lockdown, um, we were talking about maybe 33 out of 340-odd councils in the UK have made these plans because there was never any money attached to them. Um, but yeah, so yeah, long term, it's going to be a bit of a challenge and there isn't enough money anyway. But short term, you know, we're looking at pop-up bike lanes and expanded pavements. And the exciting thing is that Grant Shapps in his announcement said that, that councils should be looking to reallocate road space to cycling and walking, which is something that uh, I don't think government minister has ever said before in this way. And, and the should is important and because it's statutory guidance that they've put out. It means that councils have to have regard to this um, and they have to have a reason for not doing it. And if they don't, then they'll be in breach of the guidance, basically. So it is a very strong steer. In the small print, um, the, the central government can actually take over the highways authorities um, transport department and implement these uh, things if they're not done within statutory guidance. So it's quite a um, it's quite a bold statement, isn't it? It's the central government not asking. It's really telling. Uh, councils what they should be doing and they better have a good excuse if they're if they're not from a slightly different perspective but it, it, in terms of t- working towards the same goals i noticed some anecdotal informal evidence of uh, local communities little parades of shops actually in southwest london taking matters into their own hands um uh, and and where shops are continuing to reopen now, which will be a trend hopefully over the next few weeks, and there's limited pavement space. They've just been putting out cones into the road themselves and kind of almost inviting the authorities to remove those cones, which touch wood they haven't they haven't done so far. So that I think that's a very interesting development as well. Cause I remember in our first podcast we were talking about um you were talking about the mini Holland scheme that was opposed by the local shopkeepers initially because there was no space for cars to pull up so people could jump out and buy their cheese and jump back in, in theory. Um, well, they're actually doing the opposite of that now because they are trying to facilitate their footfall, um, which is fascinating. Um, I think the other things that are, that are worth noting, I say that the funding in itself is is not new and in some respects it's not, you know, uh, it's not the story, but I think, um, I think the speed of which this £250 million should be spent, uh, I think is the kind of impetus that's not been, um, ever forced upon local authorities. You know, often when we're talking about cycling schemes, you know, there, I've got one in the city at the moment in Coventry where, um, you know, they want it shovel ready, you know, uh, shovel ready, but it won't get built until like 2022 or something, you know, so people aren't thinking in that short term basis, whereas, uh, the government is literally saying this needs to be ready, uh, in, uh, in weeks. 
Yeah, and uh, one of the things that also was announced was that cycling and walking will get long-term funding in the same way that roads have, which is something that campaigners have been calling for for ages. Because at the moment, what happens is um, government decides it's going to give a load of money to cycling, usually not very much in transport terms, because we've got sort of 28 billion, I think, on roads at the moment, or the last roads announcement was was that. So puts it into perspective a bit. But one thing, that ha- so this money comes along and then councils have to scrabble to produce something, they often don't have uh, plans already. They don't have design standards, and then they do something that's kind of not—it's kind of okay, but not brilliant. People may or may not use it because of that, and then they have to get rid of their staff once the money runs out, and then start all over again. And so there's no continuity, and everything costs more because you don't have this—you know—your contractors basically don't have guaranteed work for X number of months. So that long-term funding piece is really important, actually. And um, presumed liability, which wasn't ex- explicitly referenced, but but heavily alluded to. Um, and obviously, in our last episode, we had uh, we had Chris Boardman on talking about uh, implied zebras. Um, and uh, while while they have not been uh, gifted by the DFT, it sounds like the concept they they come from uh, maybe. So you know, Chris Boardman talks about this little known. Uh, you know, law that a pedestrian has right of way as soon as they uh, have their their foot out to to cross the side street, um, and really the implied zebra is only reinforcing that. And uh, the the kind of presumed liability, which to explain is what happens almost everywhere else in the world uh, except for the UK, which is if a larger vehicle hits a smaller one, uh, or a, you know, car driver hits cyclist, uh, cyclist hits pedestrian. Um, and so on. All all of those things um, are, are governed by presumed liability. You know, cars have a duty of care to to bikes and so on. Um, and we don't have this in the UK. So we we have this kind of weird narrative that stems from it, I think, which is about maybe even sharing the roads, or maybe even the fact that roads are uh, are for cars uh, and, and whatnot. And that this this law can change that hierarchy. I think. And, and of course, just just to chip in there, because you did talk about Chris uh, um, and our last episode, if anybody uh, has a right to talk about that uh, with authority, it's Chris, because of his own tragedy that affected his family a couple of years ago, where his mother was killed. Um, and the uh, driver of the vehicle that did the damage um, when she was out on a bike, I should explain. I'm sure a lot of people know this story, uh, received lenient treatment in the eyes of the law. So Chris is uh, very, uh, very passionate about that subject and very well versed in it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's another, uh, you know, the whole conversation about road sentencing uh, as well, which um, which needs to needs to be looked at. So I think um, I think what this shows is that there are other factors other than funding which can have a significant impact. I think sentencing and you know would be one of them, albeit not included. Um, but uh, this um, this idea of yeah, changing the hierarchy of our uh, of our road system um, could be could be really interesting uh, as, as well. I was very heartened by um, the first in my local borough. The first time I have been asked <laughs> um, I, uh, by by my council how I think as a cyclist and as a walker um, our, our our city our borough might work better. And Lewisham Council, I think I didn't. I thought it was much more widespread, but you guys are telling me it's actually quite anomalous. But they have they've been doing a, um, an online. I think the, the software, Adam, you're telling me is called Commonplaces or something. It's excellent. It's very simple to use. They've been hosting it on their 
borough website, you go on, you open up a map, you click and drop a little a little quote box, register an account, and you just chip in with ideas and you see how many people agree or disagree. And over time, over the last 10 days or so, that's built into a real jigsaw. And I go on, I'm fascinated by it. Keep looking at it and seeing what whether people and it's what's remarkable is how much people agree and how they've they've all looked at the same pinch points in the same areas and they've all suffered from the same frustrations, seemingly that we all have. And it just begs the question, well, why wasn't this done before this half-assed infrastructure was put in? You know, Why were we never asked before? Because we're the people ultimately, we're the consumer, we're the people who do these things. Um, so anyway, I, you know, albeit late to the party, I think that this borough is doing the right thing there. And I wish, I wish other boroughs would get involved. Um, yeah. And those, those um, commonplace uh, consultations are fantastic. I remember they did one in, in Waltham Forest for Leebridge Road. And it's, it's just, I had the same thing. I was fascinated and clicking on all of the things and Sheffield now has one. And I was doing that with their map. And, and yeah, I came, I came across the same thing that you did. Everyone's saying, oh, this is really dangerous for cycling or the right turn here, the left turn here is difficult or the or it's not enough space for pedestrians. And I was expecting to see people, you know, saying that they wanted more car space, but there was, there was actually very little of that. So it is quite telling, actually. And, and like you say, you wonder why it hasn't happened before. One of the things that I've always, I mean, we're going slightly off subject here, so I want to bring it back to the announcement, Adam, which I'm sure you've got more detail to fill us in on. But, but one of the things that I've always thought about badly designed cycle lane infrastructure in this country is that it's not been done by cyclists, right? And the big single missing point that they've always consistently fallen foul of is they don't even if they don't understand how fast bicycles are and how and how you can even if you're just pootling along 20 meters of bike lane is nothing and it goes by you pass through it in a matter of seconds and that you can't just stop dead you are not walking when you're on a bike and i've always felt that that cycle lane infrastructure when it's badly designed is just uh, uh, people replicating what they think a pavement should look like and what walking infrastructure should look like. And so it's great to have the users, the end users consulted. Yeah. My, I think my favorite of those is, uh, there's, I think it's a slip road up to a massive flyover somewhere in West London. About 10 years ago, I did for the Guardian, I did 10 most dangerous gyratories of London. I basically went cycling round <laughs> <laughs> the most dangerous I remember that. It was brilliant. I did, yeah, I went on this mission around London, uh, just uh, <laughs> cycling the worst junctions and seeing if I uh, survived, and I did. But yeah, I think the fa- my fa- my favourite discovery uh, was was this sort of panic by panic kind of lay by for cycles, which was barely longer than a bicycle, but it's on a slip road up to the up to like a flyover. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think we should have a rule that's uh, you know if you're going to design cycling infrastructure, you should you should be willing to to use the, the thing. Yeah, well, I, I I pointed out a couple of months ago, I just did a little tweet and and it took off, but um, saying that if you see a cyclist dismount sign, uh, then uh, then you you know we should by law have to change those to say I failed. I've given up. I've given up. Like they, they, they should not exist. Like if, if, can you imagine if highways engineers had to, highways engineers had to design systems for cars where every 200 meters you'd stop your car, get out, open the door, press a little button, like wait in dignified for about two minutes, uh, and then, and then drive on again to the next 300 meters. These things would never, never get built. So I think we've got to take a common sense approach. My my one of my boys uh, who's six, I took him on a ride uh, the other day in, in lockdown, and and uh, you know 
the kids kids have a have a fresh approach on things and we were cycling along and he just he just learned to read and he just said daddy why does it say end at the end of the cycle lane <laughs> and i was <laughs> like i don't know son i don't know <laughs> um, you know i couldn't could help him but i think i think we have to look at that and i think that probably brings brings us off in this massive segue to to local authorities laura because uh local authorities um are stretched as you say sometimes don't have the expertise uh, in-house um and their track record let's face it in some places is not good and effectively we're asking them to really stretch themselves in a matter of weeks uh to effectively i guess in the government's language would be to save you know save our public transport keep the economy moving and in our network you know in our discussion as advocates would be you know we have this one opportunity now to get people on bikes otherwise they're going to start getting into cars and already I'm frustrated at how, how slowly that's happening. Um, do you think we're being a bit ambitious? Mm, well, I think on the on the kind of what people are building, what councils are building element, there are going to be new design standards coming from central government, which they've been talking about for a while now. And I have every hope that they're going to be good. I know that Andrew Gilligan is, you know, his work in London was was pretty good. Um and he was very particular about not letting things slide if something got changed or, you know, he was all about the details, basically, and making sure it's workable. And he's going to be the same with the design standards. So they've been produced by a, um, a consultancy, I think. Uh, but he's going to be looking over those and making sure they're good. And that's going to really help local authorities, because at the moment, as I said, you know, they're sort of being given money and then they have to come up with something. And it's you know, with all the best will in the world, they don't always know what they're doing. And to have that guidance from central government is super important. Um, I think it's worth being cautiously optimistic. Obviously, the announcement on Saturday, the money isn't that big, but the language is very, very different from what we've heard before. So I think it is worth, you know, believing that that good things are going to come um, from from this government. And obviously, Boris is is dead into cycling and was and was very good at that as mayor. Just to go back to the money, which you've already explained is not necessarily new money, but you did mention that there's an emergency fund of 250 million, which is presumably to be spent immediately to alleviate the, I mean, what is that? And what does it, what does it involve? It's it's all quite new. So I don't, I don't know. And we don't know if it's going to be, uh, council's going to have to bid for it. We don't know how, the, how they're going to check where, where the money's going or, you know, not that, yeah, I, yeah, we don't know. Because on the face of it, the only th- the only stuff I'm seeing at the moment is red plastic barriers going up, and I'm sure they're not cheap. But I'm sure you could put a lot out for 250 million quid. Mm, yeah, well, those red barriers are kind of okay as temporary measures, and I think there are also these things called wands, which just look like looks like a kind of orange pencil which sticks to the which kind of bolt onto the road, and you can make a cycle lane from that. Cones are like a legit way of creating space for. I think they've done that down in Hern Hill. You know, obviously short term that's okay; it doesn't look the tidiest, but it does the job. But long term, obviously, you're going to want something a bit more permanent. You can use those wands long term. There's one on there's a kind of a section of wands on Cycle Soup Highway Two. They're they're kind of all right too, but um, yeah, yeah, you'd think you'd like to think that they go a long way. Another thing that uh, government specifically mentioned was creating low traffic neighbourhoods and potentially pedestrianising high streets, and you can stop traffic from coming through, but still permit cycles and pedestrians, and also buses if you need to, and you can just put planters in roads. Tell me about planters. Tell me about planters, Laura, because they're quite big. Welcome to Gardener's Question Time. <laughs> 
There's a fantastic pub in Deptford called the Dog and Bell on down a little side street at the back of an estate. And uh, it's where me and the editor of Rouleur magazine quite often go and hang out. Um, it's closed at the moment, which is irritating. But that little street has been shut off on either end by two planters. And I, I do look at that. I've run past it a couple of times. And um, while I applaud the idea, I, I kind of think, well, what if a fire brigade needed to get in there or an ambulance? I mean, I presume they've thought about that. There must be other ways of getting in. I don't know the street in particular you're talking about specifically. The one that I've seen... Well, it just seems to be it just seems to be these standard planters, Laura, which look like they're about three foot long and about a foot wide, and they're quite hefty. Like, I mean, I don't think you could just pick one up and move one to the side. You know, so I'm just... I'm being a devil's advocate here. I'm sort yeah, of thinking if my if if I if I wasn't a cycling advocate and someone said we're going to close your street to traffic, I might think what with that. So I'm not sure I'm sure it's thought through. I just don't understand it myself. Yeah, totally legit point. Um so one thing that um councils need to do when they're when they're doing this, when they're filtering streets with planters is talk to the um emergency services and make sure that they know it's there and they can still get access. So if you kind of put one of these planters in the middle of a street, then emergency services will know that they're going to have to access it from one end or the other and they're not going to be able to drive through. Yeah, but obviously it has to be carefully thought through and, and you know, you have to be careful of the location. In uh, in the permanent schemes that I've seen, um, you know, they they use specific material where um, those those uh, ones can be driven over uh, effectively um, or like with certain access points, they've got a master key that they can, you know, unlock, but it becomes part of the, the, the local knowledge. But I think, it, you know, I think it's an important point. So you talked a little bit about... Um, the design guidance and you mentioned a name that not everyone will be familiar with, but, uh, that was Andrew Gilligan. Um, and he, he was the, uh, cycling czar for Boris Johnson yeah. while he was mayor of London. Um, Laura, based on your, uh, inside journalistic knowledge, how much of things are being run behind the scenes by, uh, by Andrew Gilligan and how much can we relate to this kind of new pressure straight from number 10? Well, my understanding is that it is very much being led by Boris and we know his record in London. He was the guy who first of all put in the blue paint cycle superhighways, which were terrible, and then upgraded to the second, there was a sort of second generation bunch, which then had the proper curb separation. And he really went all out and kind of realized you have to do it properly or not do it at all because paint doesn't work. And actually the government specifically said in their guidance, don't do paint because it doesn't work or discouraging councils from using paint. Um, yeah, I think I have heard that it's coming from Boris Johnson. Um, Andrew Gilligan isn't the kind of guy that would take a job where he doesn't have uh, the ability to influence. So he's probably getting his instructions directly from Boris. He made sure of that in London because without that, you know, you can stuff can get pushed back. So I imagine that he's got you know, a fair amount of clout, but it's obviously national government is different, very different to uh, London government. So um, there's a lot more kind of people in play. We've got Dominic Cummings, who's obviously got a lot of power in the civil service. Um, And, but yeah, you know, I think, I think, um, I think, you know, they did good stuff in London. I think there's reason to be optimistic for for the UK, but there's obviously a lot of different people with different interests um, and transport isn't, you know, isn't at the very, very top of everyone's agenda. It's a sort of bit of a nerdy side side niche for a lot of uh, politicians. No. <laughs> no. I mean, we love it, but no. not everyone else gets oh, it. No. Not nerdy at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's, it's, funny, it's funny, isn't it? He's, 
I mean, the the Gilligan Johnson combination is undeniably effective. Yeah. Uh, it's it's hard to look outside, you know, what what they managed to achieve in quite a short space of time in London and that that legacy. And I I'm, I know that I know that Chris um, was quite, very close to Andrew Gilligan at one point and was quite you know, and has actually been quite close to Gilligan since his move to number 10 and the, the policy unit there. So, you know, the seed that whether or not it originally came from Boris Johnson was planted in London has definitely kind of uh, moved, moved moved outside and is having an effect. And I think you do have to credit Andrew Gilligan for that. Yeah. And you wonder, it's very noticeable that one of the major cycle superhighways, the east-west route goes right past the door, the kind of door of parliament across parliament square and along the Victoria embankment that couldn't have been more sort of obvious to anyone coming in and out of parliament. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think hopefully Andrew Gilligan and Boris Johnson will know from their experience in London, because one of the things I, I say to people when they talk about funding is, um, you know, the amount that's been talked about for funding, let's call it a billion and a half here and there, is really what London has had over a sustained period of time mm. to get to where London is. And London is not, you know, it's good, it's fine. There's lots of work to still to do. So the expectation from central government that you could apply a similar amount of money that you've applied in London over a similar amount, or if not longer period of time, and achieve the same across the whole country just doesn't make sense. So it's got to, it's, I imagine it's got to be followed up with, with funding, which they have talked about, but you know, they do talk about funding quite a lot, uh, and, and proofs in the pudding, but really to make this work, we've got to follow up very quickly after this 250 million with another, yeah. another injection. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. And hopefully that will come. I think when they, I remember when they did the announcement in February and they talked about 250 miles of cycle routes across the UK, which obviously isn't a lot. But yeah, even then, your your bottleneck is the kind of capacity at local authority level. So it's it's not going to be, you know, we're not going to be able to go from naught to 60, um, to use a motoring expression, in sort of five seconds. But... <laughs> but you know we're going to have to um yeah it's going to have to be a but you know given the emergencies that we're facing not only the um, social distancing emergency kind of right now the covid emergency but obviously air pollution um inactivity congestion and yeah these are pressing issues so i also think laura that um i don't think that the 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 levels of people going to work is anything like what they're going to be mm, hopefully yeah. unless we're all locked down again you know this is going to grow um, exponentially over the next uh, couple of weeks, people going back to work, if you like. And, and, I, and I don't think that the measures that are being taken and have been taken so far are necessarily the right ones. So I think that as people start to use these temporary facilities, we're going to learn how how they should be used and how they should be structured. And w- one of my things, again, so, so to go back to the planters, I didn't quite understand how that was supposed to work, but I also don't see, when I see some of them, pictures of them, I don't quite see how you're going to separate pedestrians and, and cyclists. I think that looks quite messy, potentially. Um, some of them seem better designed than others. So I think I think there demands a, a degree of thinking on the hoof and, and people reacting and being flexible in their thinking about this over the coming weeks. Yeah, totally. There's going to be good ones and bad ones. I think there's some something I saw a video of um, a sort of painted lane somewhere on what looked like quite a main road. And uh, yeah, clearly that's not going to work. But yeah, like hopefully, like you say, Ned, it will be an iterative process and councils will be open to saying, well, actually, that doesn't work. We need to change it. Yeah. The really challenging thing, I think, is how how you've almost got to get it right first time. 
you've got to get it right very quickly uh, and you've got to do it you know with 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 limited funds and i think we saw the 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 one you mentioned Laura, i think was a dual carriageway in brighton and brighton being one of the first councils to do anything you know they should be applauded but now they've created effectively something that, that you know they've created a cycle lane unprotected on a dual carriageway um which which like is not is not good it needs segregation quickly uh in 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 my opinion um and i think that we uh we need to get all these things right and the thing that worries me is looking at pictures of london at the moment or going out in just in my suburban town is is uh people are driving aren't they people are driving more we we're on the if you're pessimistic you say we're on the crux of, of potentially uh l- losing this and i think the Bo- boris johnson's speech which followed up the announcement from grant shapps and uh, and has been repeated by grant shapps since so it's clearly a government line it's not a mistake they've copied it line by line is use your car uh, or even better walk or cycle and that sentence could have easily been Walk or cycle if you can, but if you really have to, drive. I completely agree. That struck me at the time. I thought you've literally said that in the wrong order, haven't you? But then again, I mean, there is a there's a there's a kind of logic gap in a lot of the the messaging, not just about active travel, but seems to be uh, apparent, and and it's um it's falling and playing out illogically in people's ears. I mean, I was I was uh, contacted on Twitter today by a, an organisation called the. You probably know all about them, guys, but the British Drivers Association. Yeah. Right. Okay. So saying perfectly reasonably, actually, but in my opinion, just slightly wrongheadedly, um, cars are the safest place to be. It's as simple as that. Um, don't restrict the width of our roads because we need to be in cars. That is, the, the, you know, and I'm thinking, why? I'm thinking, why are you taking issue with me trying to suggest that more people get onto bikes and surely that frees up the space for those people who re- like you probably would claim you really have to be in a car the fewer the fewer of there are of you the better it is for you you know uh, and one of the great um messages the good news stories that we have to um uh, proselytize about is that we have almost endless capacity right we can absorb lots of this stuff we can take on bring it on bring the numbers on um, and we will find a way of coping of uh, with walkers and, and pedestrians. Whereas it's very hard to argue that in, if you're a car driver trying to go about a congested journey. Um, so it seems slightly illogical from their perspective to say, no, you should all be in cars. That's the way we'll all uh, not get anywhere. You know, so we need to attack that logic, I think. And you can understand why people feel that way um, if that's how they get around, you know, because if people haven't, if someone hasn't cycled for 10, 20 more years, then they're going to look at people cycling, think, well, they look very fit. They're wearing, you know, Lycra, as many people on British roads are. I can't do that. I don't want to wear a tight costume. Maybe I don't feel confident about the way I look. Maybe I'm not confident about riding on the roads. And, and so that is a kind of legit legitimate fear that people have. And I think um, I think uh, the West Midlands police have done some work on the kind of psychology around cycling and why people uh, turn against people cycling, because they're afraid in a way that somehow if, if more infrastructure is built, that somehow they're going to be forced to use it. And I think that frightens people. And you can understand, you can understand it, you know, if it's, if it looks like something that's technical, that requires special skill, that requires, you know, things that you don't really need in cars, it's so easy to drive now and when they feel so safe. And yeah, and I think people have to be made to feel safe and to understand that, you know, you can get obviously get a lot more people on the roads on bicycles. Bicycles aren't dangerous inherently. 
and you know ultimately that's our that's a messaging issue i think um, one of the things that's kind of keeping me going though because um i have kind of gone a bit up and down over the last week of just sort of being enthused by the the funding and also going outside and seeing that we're you know people on bikes now might not be able to ride bikes any soon is uh is something i didn't know until last week i didn't know who that person was and that person is jackie Oatley, uh, who I believe is a colleague of yours, Ned, but she's got quite a, a following. She's come into cycling totally afresh and is totally hooked and just an amazing advocate for it. Yeah, she's, I mean, Jackie, I've, I've worked with Jackie Oatley, who's a uh, football, primarily football uh, presenter on television, as well as darts, which is the sport that we both work together on, on ITV. Um, I've known Jackie for years. Um, she is an MBE. She was the first, um, she was the first ever female football commentator uh, to be used on match of the day. Um, so she's in her own respect, a, a bit of a trailblazer. She's an incredibly enthusiastic person. Um, but uh, in all the years that I've known her, she has shown zero interest in anything with two wheels. Um, she, when she was an amateur footballer, she um, ripped her legs and her cruciate ligaments or her kneecap or something horrible to, you know, to bits playing football. And so she has been kind of uh, stuck in the gym doing non-load bearing exercises to, to maintain her fitness. But never in a million years did it cross her mind that she might be able to replicate some of that on a bike. Far from it. The only time she would ever talk to me about cycling was to ask me about Lance Armstrong and doping and stuff like that. And that's where it ended. Um, she's got a young family. She lives in the suburbs in southwest, uh, just outside southwest London. And like so many people who live in places like that, and to get it away from London, those kind of suburbs are replicated up and down the country, length and breadth of the country. Um, she would instinctively dump her kids and herself in a car wherever she went in her lo local little town uh, without question. Um, even if it was the shortest journey, as she explains in this interview, um, just to go down to the shops. And so it was to my Great surprise. I suddenly noticed Jackie's very active on Twitter, starting to talk about cycling. So I kind of reached out to her and I recorded an interview with her um, about her newfound passion for cycling. And I think it's a template for the kind of people that we need to access and the kind of uh, revolution in their thinking that you can elicit if you approach people in the right way. Jackie, it's really uh, it's a really unexpected place and situation to find myself talking to you. We were going to be in Minehead watching darts players do their thing and all that, but um, obviously the world has been turned on its head, and um, and I've noticed that you have suddenly started to take an interest in bikes in a way that is unimaginable to me because I don't think we've had a conversation about bikes that's lasted more than about 15 seconds in our entire lives prior to this. We only normally talk about, say, something like Lance Armstrong and that kind of story over dinner in our little, um, <laughs> in our little porter cabin where we have our dinners in the freezing cold at Minehead, be it in March or in November. So no, exactly. This is a very much newfound passion of mine. And it happened on the eve of lockdown when a friend of mine who's my little boy's best friend's mum, we hang out locally. She messaged me saying, I've just bought a bike from the local bike shop. You need to buy one too, because the deputy chief medical officer says the only thing that we can do at the moment is go out with our kids two meters apart. That was before we actually couldn't do that anymore. And so let's buy a bike and let's, let's do it. So they've got one left. If you want to come and buy it, they shut in half an hour. And I was like, I looked it up and I was working at the time and my husband was just doing dinner. And I said, babe, I just want to go and buy a bike for 400 quid. And he was like, how much? And I said, I know it's a lot, but they've recommended it. Michelle's just bought one. 
I've been wanting to buy one anyway. I've never got around to it. And lockdown's coming. And I want to be able to get out with the kids, without the kids. Anyway, we had a bit of an argument, I'll be honest. And he calmed down a bit. I looked up on the website, how much it is elsewhere, similar prices. He realized, actually, that's the going rate. It's two months worth of gym membership that I just... um, um, postponed, in, you know, for, for the duration of lockdown and possibly longer now. And he realized it was a good idea. And yeah, all was good. And I bombed down to the local bike shop. I said, thanks so much for keeping it for me. They didn't need to do that. They could have just sold it to the next person coming in because they were, they were flying off the shelves. They were just going like mad because people had a similar idea. And I thought, well, I better use it now. And I have only not been out on it one day in the past six weeks as a result. And well, that's just amazing. Well, the way it's transpired is I've been getting up at whatever time I wake up between 6 and 6.30 and putting my cycling gear in the ensuite the night before, my clothes, getting up when I wake up and sneaking out, switching the alarm off, going to the garage and off on my bike for an hour or so, first thing when there are hardly any cars on the roads. And it's been absolutely wonderful. So um, I've got so many questions. I mean, the reason the reason it really caught my eye, you suddenly tweeting about it, I follow you obviously on Twitter, and um, it's because I have been involved in kind of cycling advocacy and trying to spread spread the word for a long, long time. Not not just the Tour de France sort of thing, but but you know, genuinely trying to revolutionise the built environment and the way that we um, use transport. And yet, one of the big intractable problems has been finding how to break out of my own echo chamber. So I find myself constantly talking to the same people about the same things and accessing the rest of the population of the country has been very difficult, which is why people like you and your testimony become incredibly precious resources to me, because I can tell straight away your enthusiasm is there. Um, you are a person I know you very well who's, who likes to use a platform when there's something that you believe in. But tell me, what has... Um, I kind of get, it's self-explanatory what, what really appeals to you about it. It sounds to me like at the moment, you're literally using it to get fresh air and a bit of exercise. You're going into, are you riding on the road, for example, or are you going off-road? Or what, what does that look like? Yeah, I'm taking pretty much different routes all the day, although um, every day. Although I have a favourite route because it involves a horrible hill. And I find that when I go up horrible hills, uh, my Apple Watch tells me that I've been a very good girl and that I've you know, used up a lot of energy in a short period of time. Um, so it's a combination of some main roads, which are a lot quieter at the moment, but to get to beautiful areas. And um, I live in Surrey and I've been sort of bombing around Cobham and Oxshots and, and looking yep. at some beautiful houses where most of the Chelsea players live. I'm wondering, oh, who lives there? Is that Andy Murray's house? Who lives there? And it's just been, he's as a very nosy journalist, it's just been fascinating. So it's been a real combination. I've no desire to sit in major traffic jams and be... Um, breathing in lorry fumes. Uh, but the most really I've come up against is a few lorries and refuse collectors on a Friday morning. Um, but it's just been wonderful. And for somebody like me, who, as you probably know from whenever we meet up, I'm always run down, I'm always stressed out, juggling the kids and random jobs on different days and different locations. And I'm so fastidious when it comes to prep that I'm working all the time effectively. So to have this time when most of my work's been cancelled, frankly, apart from a Monday podcast, to have this time to be able to get up with my husband furloughed at home and able to help with the kids, to go out and have that headspace and and go through woods and um, alongside fields and 
hear birds. Now, excuse me, Ned, for being Mrs. Cliche here, but the birds, the only tweeting I ever get involved in is the type that you (laughs) know very well, which is the reason why we're here talking about this. Honestly, I haven't heard these blinking birds and their beautiful song for years and I'm ashamed to admit it but I got so caught up in the pace of life of bombing here bombing there in my car I might add literally everywhere and not listening and just seeing the beautiful sunshine as it breaks through the trees and the woodland around me and it's just been an absolute revelation and no I don't think this is purely a lockdown hobby and then when we are allowed to go back to work and do everything normally well I'll just get back in the car i genuinely don't think that'll be the case because previously I had perfectly cyclable journeys and distances, which were never even entering my head before. I would drive, get somewhere in five minutes and then think, oh, I'll spend 10, 15 minutes trying to park, you know, big into apps on my phone and Ringo and pay by phone, have my cards all in there to make my life easy. Parking at the train station, which is a five minute drive 10 minutes on the bike. Honestly, I won't be doing that anymore. And my husband as well, he's never ridden a bike since he was a kid. Because I'm banging on about this every single day, he's now going to buy a bike and cycle the 40-minute car (laughs) journey to work through beautiful Richmond Park. And he reckons he'll do it in about 45 minutes. And I did half the route for him this morning to check it out. So he's even got the bug and he hasn't even got a bike yet, but he's absolutely going to buy it. And usually he is at home in the morning and then he'll walk three paces out the front door into the drive, into a car, sit in traffic, 45 minutes, work, sit on his backside all day and then get back in the car outside his office door and drive home again. That's not a healthy lifestyle and he knows it. So he's also seeing the light via my ridiculous new enthusiasm that I'm banging on about the whole time. So what's so, I mean, I had a very similar experience best part of 20 years ago when the penny dropped with me, actually, is when I started ridiculously in a similar way to, to you, it took something kind of quite extreme to enlighten me. And in my case, that was being sent to cover the Tour de France. <laughs> I kept, I, uh, yeah, it is quite extreme. I kind of thought, what's this cycling thing all about when I got back and bought myself a bike? And then, but I do remember somebody saying to me, because I used to, I used to ride it one mile and then chain it up outside a tube station and for the rest of the journey into town, I used to take my tube and bits of my bike kept getting nicked. And then and I kind of have to replace them, go back to the bike shop and my saddle's been nicked, my handlebar's been nicked. And they said, mate, why don't you just ride all the way into town? You know, and I, and it was like the, the eight miles was the total distance. And I thought they were insane. You know, uh, um, it turns out eight miles is what, 30 minutes. I mean, it's, you know, 35 minutes and that's all it takes. And you get a bit faster as you get better as well and stuff. So, I'm really glad to hear that the utilitarian aspect of this revolution that you're part of is also clear to you, that it's not just a thing that you do on Sundays to get a bit of fresh air. You can knit it into your everyday life. When you get some panniers on the back of that bike, I don't know if you've got them there already, you'll be stunned by how much stuff you can carry on that bike. And when your panniers are full, you can balance stuff old school on your handlebars. I mean, it's just brilliant. and. Um, and it sounds like you don't even need encouragement in terms of, because I've already noticed it in the last 24 hours of your social media activity. And you just told me you're going onto the BBC Five Live tomorrow morning to say hopefully similar things and put out the message. It sounds like you're thoroughly on board and you're going to be kind of one of us in terms of advocacy now. 
oh, totally, the penny has dropped. It's a mindset. And I, I actually, this, this is kind of weird, Ned, but I binge listened to all three of your podcasts this morning. That's weird. Even I haven't done that. I don't listen to any of them back. <laughs> I have, I have. And I was fascinated by Chris Boardman and the psychologist guy from the university. Sorry, I've forgotten his yeah, name. Yeah. About, yeah, yeah. yeah, about our mindsets and sort of learned behaviors and how we can change our behaviors. That's how I feel is that my learned behavior is kids have got a PE kit. I need to jump in the car because I'm a busy person working from home. What have you? I need to jump in the car. No, now it's like brilliant. I'll have to go into the garage, get my helmet on. And cause I am quite fastidious about helmets. Um, and just cycle two minutes to the kid's school for goodness sake. And mm. going to my local shop, you know, if I've got a beauty appointment, it's a nightmare to park. But if I cycle, I know exactly how long it's going to take and how long it will take yep. me to, to, to um, chain up my bike and pop in to get my nails done or whatever. But I hadn't thought like this before. Whereas now, and because I'm really into health and fitness anyway, I go to the gym, but I drive to the gym, drive back. I hadn't thought of any other way. And again, I can't run because of my knees. I can't do anything. My knees are really, really painful. But cycling's really helping to build up the muscles in my thighs. And that's exciting too. So it's, it's a proper win-win situation. And so now I'm feeling not only evangelical about the joys of cycling, but also now I've started following loads of cycling people and movements on Twitter because I'm really into the idea of extra cycling lanes and making it easy for people and not super dangerous because we don't want all these unnecessary accidents. And, and you know, when I've accidentally discovered cycling lanes this morning, for example, in Kingston, when I just thought I had to sit in the main, um, you know, the main traffic I'm used to sitting in. And then I looked down, I was like, oh, you can go up that one way street because there's a cycle lane taking you yep. up that way. I didn't know that stuff. Extra privileges, extra privileges. It's like being part of a, of a kind of executive club. It's amazing. But listen, it, it, I, I mean, it's, I'm almost lost for words about how much you've brought into this. Um, delight, delighted to have you on board. And listen, next time, and uh, God hope it's soon, sooner rather than later, because I miss it so much. Next time we're down um, doing the darts. Let's see if we can get some of those darts players on, on bikes as well. That's, that's our next challenge. Yeah, listening to that, Ned, it's just, it's so inspiring that somebody could come to, to this so fresh and have such a good experience. And it just shows, I think, that, you know, you don't need to complicate people's journey of getting on a bike. And if you create a good environment for people, you know, uh, it can have massive impacts and change their lives. I think um, one of the things that I've been thinking about in the last couple of days follows on from that DFT announcement is um, hidden at the bottom of the DFT announcement was an endorsement from Gary Thomas and Chris Froome about, uh, about the government's funding for cycling and that how people should get back on their bikes. And and I've talked about this and, and some people disagree, but a lot of people do agree uh, and, and I can see both sides. But I would say that someone like Jackie is the kind of advocate we need and Heidi Alexander, you know, people that aren't typically represented well in cycling, they have got busy lives, they have got, you know, they do aspirational things and they are just, there's an element of normality about them and they're they're not superheroes, they're not fast. They're not wearing Lycra. They're not warriors. Uh, they're not men for one. Uh, and they're just out there doing good things on, on bikes. And I bet you they will be able to get more cut through. And what's particularly pleasing about Jackie's story, as she detailed, was that very quickly in the space of a couple of weeks, she's joined the dots between two different expressions of cycling, um, which often takes people years or they don't do it at all. So she started off using it as a form of exercise. And then she suddenly went, oh, I can do the same, I can take the same bit of kit and 
just run down to the shops and leave my bike chained up there, as she explained. And um, so I think that was particularly pleasing. And Adam, I do kind of agree with you that as nice and headline grabbing as it is to have endorsements from Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas, with respect to those guys, both of whom I know very well, um, they have not the faintest idea what they're talking about. <laughs> For them, them, it's an obscure um, profession that is uh, uh, practiced and planet zog. It relates <laughs> to everyday cycling uh, as much as I relate to um, to a, a sperm whale. Frankly, it's they're, they're, they're two different things, you know. So, so it, I mean, it, get, it makes some nice headlines, but what they do in my mind isn't cycling. Well, let's hope that um, we we get more uh, more trackers on bikes, um, and uh, everybody can have a have a small impact. And I think Jackie obviously talked about in the early part of her interview of um, how her friend got her into cycling on the work on the spur of the moment. So let's never underestimate um, how uh, important those individual things can be. Um, but we have got to build that infrastructure, and we have got to make it safe for people. Otherwise, people will just stop. So. Here's hoping, hopefully by next episode, the episode after, we can talk about the, the many examples of uh, amazing bike lanes that now are uh, uh, across the country. Um, but until then, uh, you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Let us know what you think. We're at Pod Streets Ahead on Twitter. And if you know other people that would like this podcast, then please do share it with them. It really helps us. Finally, wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast. It helps even more people find us. Until next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.